Well, peer pressure can make you do some strange things, can't it? Um, in one experiment about peer pressure, uh, one psychologist put 10 people in a classroom and showed them all a chart with three different lines drawn on it and she asked them to vote for, by a show of hands, which of those three lines they thought was the longest. Now, it wasn't a trick question. Uh, one of the lines actually was uh, obviously the longest of the three. However, the trick was that unbeknownst to one of the ten, the other nine people had been secretly organised to always vote for the second longest line because she wanted to test whether or not that tenth person would be influenced by the other nine. Sure enough, 75% of the time, what would happen was that the tenth person would glance around the room, see everyone else's hands go up, and so slip their hands up to vote for a line that they knew in themselves was not the longest. Time after time, the person would sit there saying that a short line was long simply because they wanted to fit in. Peer pressure can make you do some strange things. Maybe you're being tempted to do some strange things at the moment. Maybe at your workplace. Maybe at your school. Maybe when you're out with your friends. Maybe when it's with your family. Maybe you're feeling the pressure to just tone down the whole Jesus thing. Don't get so carried away about that. Maybe you're even feeling a bit of pressure to give up on Jesus altogether. In this morning's Bible passage, John is writing to a group of Christians who are feeling that sort of pressure. In verse 26, John refers to people who are trying to lead them astray. And so this morning, John urges his readers to not buckle under that pressure, but to stand firm as Christians, to not let peer pressure cause them to do strange things. And as such, it's a helpful passage for you and I to have a look at. I'd like to tackle it under the headings of who, what and how, because I think that pretty much captures the broad flow of the verses. As John firstly describes who it is that are trying to lead the church astray, what it is that they are saying that is so bad, and then how it is that the church should go about resisting them. Who, what, how? Let's start with the who. Who exactly are these troublemakers leading these Christians, or at least tempting to lead them astray? Verse 18 again. Dear friends, this is the last hour, as you, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. I want you to notice two important things about who these troublemakers are. Firstly, notice that they actually used to be part of the group that John's writing to. They went out from us, he says there in verse 19. Clearly, they used to be part of them. That would have been an unsettling experience to have some of your very own split from you and then be trying to pressure you to follow them. No wonder, as we've noticed 
throughout the letter so far, John has been writing this letter to comfort and reassure his readers. It's because they're fairly shell-shocked. They're pretty confused. People who used to be with them, people who they used to know well, people who used to perhaps be their family and friends, they've gone out from us. So, first observation, the people causing trouble actually used to be part of the group that he's writing to. Second observation, did you notice what John calls them? I'm sure you did because it's quite a provocative name. He calls them Antichrist. Dear children, this is the last hour and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us. Who went out? Antichrists. That doesn't sound a very nice title. Well, it's not. Although don't let your imagination get too carried away at this point. Especially if you have heard the name Antichrist before. Because more often than not, in horror movies, and even in some Christian circles, the name Antichrist is used to refer to a future evil individual who will rise to power as the devil's right-hand man and throw the world into turmoil and tribulation and who will eventually trigger the end judgment of the world. Now, if all that information about the Antichrist you've not actually heard before, blessed are you. Because that particular understanding of the Antichrist as a future tyrant, that's more based on imagination and pop culture than what the Bible actually says. Because in the Bible, the name Antichrist only comes up three times. It's used here in this morning's passage. It's going to turn up again in a couple of chapters' time, in chapter 4, verse 3. And then it's only ever used one other time in the letter of 2 John. And just like in this morning's reading, every single time the name Antichrist comes up, it does not refer to a future bad person at all. It's actually used to refer to lots of people who already existed back in New Testament times. Lots of people who, as the name implies, were opposed to Jesus. They were anti-Christ. In what, were, in what way were they anti-Jesus? And in what sense could these people have ever been part of the Christian group that John was writing to in the first place since they were opposed to Jesus? Well, that becomes a bit more obvious in verse 22, which explains not just who they are, but what it was that they were saying that was so bad. Look at verse 22. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. See what the Antichrist is saying? They're denying that Jesus is the Christ. Now, the Christ, of course, is the title for God's chosen king. Christ is the title used in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. It's the title given to the person who God chooses to be the ruler and master of all the world. For hundreds of years, the Old Testament predicted the coming of this Christ. He is described in the Old Testament this as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a person appointed by God to be A, the Messiah of Israel, and B, the leader of the entire world. 
And these antichrists were saying that Jesus was C, none of the above. They are anti-Jesus being the Christ. Now, can you think of anyone in the Old Testament who refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah? As you read the Gospels especially, who is it who rejects Jesus as the Christ? As I mentioned a few weeks back, I'm thinking it's the Jews of the time who have to be the prime suspect here. And that the people that John is referring to here as Antichrist are in fact the Jews of the time who refused to believe that Jesus was their Christ. In the next chapter, John will also describe these exact same people who are leading them astray as children of the devil. And that is a phrase that is used by Jesus himself in John's Gospel to describe the Jews who refused and opposed him in, the, in John's Gospel. And therefore, again, I think it's the New Testament Jews who refused to believe that Jesus is their Christ. That's who John is referring to as Antichrist here. And it makes complete sense of the letter's context where John says that they used to be part of them. See, we often forget how Jewish the early church was. By far, most of the first people who became Christians were Jews in background. So deeply Jewish was the early church that Acts tells us that they used to meet in the Jerusalem temple as their meeting place. When the Apostle Paul would visit a town, he would always head firstly to the synagogue. And it was in the synagogue that he would try and convince the Jews there that Jesus was the Christ. The early Christians were very, very, very Jewish in their culture and their background. So imagine what it would do to you when you've become a Christian... But all your Jewish family and friends who are not convinced that Jesus is the Christ, imagine the effect it would have on you when they decided that enough was enough, they've put up with this Christian phase you're going through for long enough, and they decide to withdraw from you. They decide to have nothing to do with you anymore until you come to your senses and wake up to the fact that Jesus is not the Messiah. And suddenly you are cut off from your cultural background. Suddenly you are cut off from your heritage. Suddenly you are cut off from your family. That is exactly still what happens in conservative Jewish families when one of them becomes a Christian. And I reckon that's what's happening here in 1 John. These antichrists who have withdrawn and gone from us, it's the other Jews, it's mums and dads, it's friends and family, it's brothers and sisters, it's people in the community who aren't convinced that Jesus is their Messiah. And so now they're breaking fellowship with these newfangled Christians and they're cutting their ties with them. They're not hanging out with people who used to be their friends and family anymore. That would have been distressing. No wonder, as we've noticed time and time again, John is writing to reassure his readers that they are on the right track. Don't stop believing that Jesus is the Christ. And John continues in that reassurance of them by urging his readers this morning to not buckle under the pressure, but to stand firm in their belief that Jesus is the Christ. 
We've had the who and the what, here comes the how and how they are to resist this anti-Jesus being the Christ pressure being put on them and it's all got to do with remembering and and remaining. Remembering comes in verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. Now that anointing from the Holy One um, in a parallel passage that's coming up in a couple of chapters time, that's fairly obviously a reference to the Holy Spirit that God gives us. You have the Holy Spirit. You know the truth. Verse 21. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Three times in those verses, John reminds his readers that they know the truth, doesn't he? All of you know the truth, he says. You know it. And that's really important to remember because peer pressure can make you do some strange things. Peer pressure can make you question whether or not you really do know the truth, even when the truth is fairly clear. I like that experiment, where for whatever reason people kept saying that a short line was long. A few years back I was chatting to a Christian girl who was in a uh, book club with her non-Christian friends. And the way it works is they'd all read a book together and then they'd get together to chat about it at a cafe. This was a few years ago, as I said. It was back when the Da Vinci Code came out and everyone in the book club wanted to read it. Now, as some of you might remember, the Da Vinci Code was a fiction book all about a conspiracy within the Catholic Church to hide the fact that Jesus had gotten married and had kids. Well, this girl's book club got together and they wanted to read it and all of them, except her, reckoned it was a great read And even though the book is a novel, it's a work of fiction, everyone else in the book club had totally swallowed the conspiracy theory as if it was historical fact. That of course Jesus was just a man. Of course it's reasonable that he got married. Of course it's understandable that the guy had kids. Of course the church would have covered it up. That's what churches do. And anyway, the idea of Jesus being God in the flesh, that's just silly. Who honestly believes that? Now I'm telling you, it takes courage to hold the line in a situation like that, doesn't it? Sitting around your friends over a cup of coffee. That's the time to go back to basics and hold your nerve and remember you know the truth. That's the time to remember what John wrote back in chapter 1. Remember that? We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard is how John started this whole letter. It's all about John having been an eyewitness. I saw the stuff to do with Jesus with my own two eyes. I, I heard the things he said. I witnessed the things he did. I know it sounds a little ridiculous, but he is the Christ. He is God himself on earth. I'm telling you the truth is how this letter started. And John is now saying, keep reminding yourselves of that. Remember, you know the truth. And don't just remember it, remain in it. Which is what he goes on to say in the final few verses. In fact, look at how many times he tells them to remain in it. Verse 24. See to it that you, what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. Verse 27, as for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you and you don't need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as he has taught you, 
remain in him. Notice the repetition of the word remain in those sentences. You're hearing the point, you're getting the encouragement. You have received an anointing, remember? In other words, you have God's spirit. You have been taught the truth about Jesus, so remain in the truth. Stick with the truth. Stay with Jesus. Don't let go of the basics. Jesus really is the Christ. It's not made up. It's true. He is the king over all humanity. And friends, that's a good lesson for our time. Here is an encouragement that is just as relevant for us as for John's original readers. And even though our situation is a little different to theirs back then, what is still the same is that the spirit of the Antichrist is very much still around. The spirit of denying that Jesus is king, that's everywhere. That's why it was so great to hear from Laurie before about reading the Bible. That's why it's so important for us to be meeting in our twos and threes. That's why it's so important for us to be getting together in small groups throughout the week to read the Bible together. So as to proactively keep reminding ourselves of the truth and helping each other remain in the truth. That's why it's important to be putting down deep foundations in our thinking and in our lives by reading substantial Christian books. That's why it's important to be engaging your mind so that you've got a firm and thought through loyalty to Jesus. And if you're sitting out there and you are not in a small group yet, and if you're sitting out there and you haven't linked up with any other person to read the Bible with at any other time, And if you're sitting out there and you're you're not reading through a quality Christian book, if you're sitting out there and you're thinking, look, nah, Bryson, I don't need to do all that. I'll, I'll be all right. You're not getting it. You won't be all right. Because if all you do is come here on a Sunday morning and perhaps even miss more weeks than you're here, That is not nearly enough if you are going to have any hope of going the long distance with Jesus. I have seen so many people drift away. Because every time you turn on your television, every time you browse Facebook, every time you pick up a magazine, every time you listen to music on the radio... Every time we are immersed in a culture that denies that Jesus has any relevance at all to us. Least of all that he's a king who has the right to tell us how to live. You and I rub shoulders every day with people who simply don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. People like our neighbours, close friends, maybe a marriage partner, maybe your parents, maybe your children. These are people who you respect. These are people whose opinions matter to you. These are people whose friendship means a lot to you. 
But these are people who, by their very lifestyle, are suggesting to us that all this stuff about Jesus is not all that important. And look, I understand it might seem a little offensive to refer to people who we know and love in the same breath as a passage that's about Antichrist. But maybe that's because our heads are so filled with junk from Hollywood horror movies that we don't actually see the danger that John is alerting us to here. Because the fact is that many, many, many people in our lives just don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. And for a whole range of reasons, that can subtly start to shift the way we think. Almost by a process of acclimatisation to everyone else's lifestyle around us, we just stop remembering and we gradually drift from the truth that Jesus Christ is Jesus the Christ. And we need to be aware of that danger because peer pressure can make you do some strange things. So the next time you're feeling alone and the next time you're feeling a little under pressure, next time you might be surrounded by your family or friends who by their very friendliness, their very persistence, their very persuasiveness, you might be starting to have second thoughts about Jesus yourself. Just keep reminding yourself, Jesus is the Christ. Friends, it's not made up. It's true. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. I'll pray. Father, thank you for loving us enough to, re- to remind us and warn us of how important it is to remember and remain in the truth that Jesus is the Christ. Father, even this week, as we might f- face both subtle and overt pressure to downplay the importance of that truth, uh, Father, we pray that you'd help us to stand firm in it. Father, Help us to take the truth seriously so that we might help each other remember and remain in the truth that your son, Jesus Christ, is our king and our saviour. And Father, we thank you for the reassurance and the comfort that we've been reminded time and time again as we've read 1 John these past few weeks that because of Jesus we have forgiveness of sins, because of Jesus you've given us eternal life and we thank you for those things and father we pray that by your word and your spirit uh, this morning you would continue to shape us and change us so that we would remain in the truths that we have encountered these last few weeks in one john amen